Hey there, welcome back. Thanks for like 107k. And let's see what uh, Trump looks deflated after being utterly humiliated by arrest three hours ago. Well, he pleaded not guilty. Surprise, surprise. He actually wanted to say it in his own words. He has this kind of double personality. You know, when he's in his comfort zone, when he's on the stage at Mar-a-Lago or at a rally or, you know, anywhere in Florida, he feels like he's with his people, you know, he can do no wrong. But the moment you take him outside of his comfort zone, the insecurities, the sadness, the anger, you know, the vitriol... We ain't safe until he's six foot under. ...in his face. You can really see how he changed... Should. Lock him up. Okay, I said we ain't safe from this would-be tyrant until he is six feet under. The Justice Department and our government are obviously too chicken shit. A diapered on to lock him up for the rest of his life as they should. They should treat him like any other fucking terrorist. Lock him up! Okay, I'm, I'm just like cutting some text from this. Okay. Right. Changes physically. He fucking dies. Well, that was very much the case in the Manhattan courtroom today, where he sat in front of a judge and was effectively read his rights. He needs to fucking and, croak. He, he was solemn and he looked sad. He, he looked pissed off, to be honest. 
was not happy yeah. to be there. It was utterly humiliated. Poor baby say. Trump. This is a former president of the Poor United States Don. who committed Paul. crimes throughout his presidency and, of course, for decades Poor. before, who has managed to get away with it for this entire period. He managed to get away with a with uh, you know attempting to overturn the election. He still claims that he's the president. Joe Biden's in a And when he's at Mar-a-Lago, he is the president. People call him Mr. President. He wears the badge. He, you know, has a mock-up of the Oval Office as his office. He you know, basically behaves as if he is, and probably has behaved like he is the president his whole life. He's the president of the Trump Organization. That's really as far as this ever should have gone. Somehow, off the back of a successful run on The Apprentice, he managed to convince people that uh, he knew how to hire and business, fire. Man. The reality is that was never his decision. That was down to the producers. Only the producers ran the country for four years. <laughs> what we had with Donald Trump finally being held to account for many of these injustices that have made other people's lives very difficult, and that's what we sometimes forget, is that there is always a, a victim. There is always somebody or a group of people, or in this case, pretty much half of the country that have suffered at the hands of this man. An autocrat, somebody who believed that he deserved to be the president forever, and that it was you know, almost a, def a divine decision, a divine right to um, be the boss of the whole country. Fucking but not all the people, that's the thing. You know, Donald Trump was never a president for everybody, only the people that loved him and liked him and supported him. He couldn't care less about people that didn't, and, and that really, to me, is the reason about why anybody he was never himself. presidential. The he narcissistic, to the occasion. malignant narcissist, so just like Jim Jones. In him in the courtroom was a, a little boy, you know, I saw a, a disgruntled child being oh, held up in front of the principal, baby. Uh, being told off, and he doesn't like it, you know, normally uh. he's in charge. And I, it kind of got me thinking, you know, miracle. we often he refer to Donald anything. Trump as being a bit like a, a mob so far, boss, yes. you know, some of the language he uses, the way he conducts himself, the way he does business. And, and then I thought, you know, we've been getting this wrong for, for too long. He is a mobster. The, the Trump crime family it is the mob. They are the ones who pull the strings. They're the ones who sue people, they're the ones who fire people, they're the ones who call the shots, they're the ones who evade law enforcement by payoffs or any of these things that, you know, the, the mob would typically use. And I suppose, you know, we're so obsessed with, I don't know, the Sopranos or something that we presume that the family has to be Italian, but it's not the case, you know. I really noticed it when he, when he left the courtroom, you know, in silence, but with that pigeon chest kind of puffed out. And when he got in that motorcade and then went to the airport and got on his ridiculous branded aeroplane and then flew back to Florida, it was only then that he got up on a stage and made a ridiculous kind of rambling speech that was just like a lazy version of the stuff he says at rallies. You know, you would have thought if, if you're a former president and, and you have been indicted and arraigned and you appear in court and you want to say something afterwards, that you might have written it down first might have rehearsed it or even just thought about, you know, a new angle that you could present. But no, it was none of those things. It was the same old rally speak. 
the, the kind of tired, angry, lazy, negative, complaining about everybody else as if he had done no wrong. He didn't actually say at any point, I'm innocent. Never, never says that. And his lawyers never refer to him as being innocent. They just try and blame everybody else. Everyone knows how annoying cheap razors are. The cuts, the irritation, the frustration. And don't get me started with subscription razor services. The headaches those can cause. That's why you've got to meet Henson Shaving. Henson Shaving is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that has made parts for the International Space Station and Mars Rover. And now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. Razor blade, blade razor, not the best razor business. That old school shave with the benefits of new school tech. Once you own a Henson razor, it's only about three to five dollars per year to replace the blades. Much better than your run-of-the-mill quote up free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. All right, That's whatever. 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash weekend and use code weekend. But in this speech, you know, he, he attacked and threatened Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, who, who brought this indictment uh, upon him, which the grand jury voted on. Uh, Alvin Bragg's wife was mentioned and, and criticized. Judge Merchant was criticized. The judge's wife and the judge's family. Uh, Fanny Willis and Letitia James. Two other, you know, people who are bringing cases against him who he hates. He hates the fact. In that case, he hates the fact that they're female. He hates the fact that they're black. With Alvin Bragg, he hates the fact that uh, Bragg is uh, a, a, a black man. He re refers to reverse racism, which is, which is just ridiculous i mean he he's running out of of things to say he really is backed into a corner and that's why i'm kind of starting to enjoy his stream of consciousness that we see on truths social this exclamation marks the capital letters and this vitriol and then finally, he took aim at Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, who was about to unleash, you know, the full power of the Justice Department on Donald Trump, not just for his theft of documents after he left office, but, of course, for the insurrection. The fact that the president overturned, for a period of hours, the election. He delayed Joe Biden's confirmation. I mean, that in itself is for me one of the most serious crimes, an insurrection against his own country. He doesn't see it. You know, his ego, his narcissism, it's so powerful that he cannot see how... Any of these things could be considered criminal activity because he has never played by the rules, he has never followed the law, 
he is a mobster. He is a crime boss. He is a crime, you know, from a crime family, going back to his father and, of course, his children. He is everything that we feared. And so in the past, when we referred to him as being a bit like a mob boss, it was all on display. He's a mob boss. That's who we elected president. Donald Trump fits the description perfectly. Look at the people that he surrounds himself with. Rudy Giuliani, you know, with the, the big signet ring, and Paul Manafort. These people are also aggressors. They are people who threaten people all the time. They're the people who pay people off and silence people and, you know, make people disappear. That is who he has surrounded himself with. You know, all of his 2016 campaign people all ended up getting done for something. They're either, you know, in prison or they're wearing a ankle bracelet or they're out on probation or something. I mean, all of them. Those are his people. Baddies. Criminals. Cons. Ex-cons. These are the people that he seems to think are the, 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 the best of the business. You know, he's drained the swamp and this is what's left. Roger Stone. That's, that's who was left. So I think that's really what got to Trump the most, that he has always been above the law, always. And he does it in plain sight. I mean, that's the thing. He doesn't even try and hide it because he's got so much ego and he's so used to this power game where nobody would dare criticize Donald Trump because, you know, he's the one with all the power, especially in Manhattan, especially now in his new home of Florida. And so there it is, Donald Trump arraigned in front of a Manhattan judge, and then he skulks back to his... and the support of his sycophant base. And that is how the story ends. Certainly this chapter, there's a lot more to come. We're hearing a lot from Jack Smith now, from his office. We're hearing a lot more from Letitia James's office. We're starting to see that the walls are closing in on the former president, the disgraced former president, Donald John Ebenezer Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anthony Davis. You can Ebenezer. hear me every day on the 5-Minute News podcast and on Sundays on the weekend show with Midas Touch. Lock him up. Indictment season Scrooge. is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. thought his middle name was Scrooge. Thought his middle name was Scrooge. Right, so thanks for winning 7K. Um, Don Jr. Insurrection text exposed. Nice. Oh, this. Oh, what? Changed one year ago.
I don't remember a proud Don voice pleads guilty for the January 6th insurrection. Are more guilty pleas to come? Is the DOJ investigating Trump for taking top secret documents to Mar-a-Lago and eating them and flushing them down the toilet? Steve Bannon's defense for contempt of Congress is obliterated by a federal judge. Don Jr.'s text messages from November 5th, just two days after the election, we see him plotting to overturn Democratic elections. What's to come next? New York Attorney General Tish James moves for a $10,000 a day monetary sanction against Donald Trump in her civil fraud case. The Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg says, not so fast. I'm still investigating Trump. Is he full of shit? Katanji Brown Jackson becomes justice. Katanji Brown Jackson. The most consequential news of the week, broken down in ways that you can understand. If it's the weekend, it is legal AF. Ben Mycel is joined by my co-host, Michael Popak, the Popokian leader. Popak, how are you doing? I've been elevated to leader. I feel I feel great. Thanks, Ben. I'm really looking forward to tonight. That that was a rousing lineup, but we're gonna do it all. Let's get right into it, Popak. And of course you would be the Popak. Popokian leader. You are the Popokian. Let's talk about mm-hmm. non-Popokians. Let's talk about the Proud Boys. It's a ridiculous name, number one, but let's talk about this guilty plea by one of their leaders, a leader of their North Carolina chapter. It's weird when you read about this, too, just the way they have these various, like, chapters and just their organizational well, it's based on the It's based on the KKK. The KKK had all of those types of grand wizards and chapters, and, and they, they stole a page from another racist, you know, historical racist group. And so you have Charles Donahoe. He entered his plea at a virtual hearing in federal court this week. He was one of six senior Proud Boys who have been charged with conspiring to obstruct Congress's certification of Biden's election victory. He pled guilty to obstruction and a number of other counts. He was also among one of the first individuals to enter the Capitol building. Now, this guilty plea, though, we've talked about it before on this podcast because people have been very down on Merrick Garland. It's taking too much time, but you know, he taught, you know, he started off with, you know, some of the lower level people. He's been working his way up. Um, now, the interactions ah. between these ah. radical right extremist groups and radical right politicians is really what seems to be being probed here. Um, also, this guilty plea by Charles Donahoe also starts getting the DOJ really focused on a lot of these other top level Proud Boy leaders, not just at the kind of local North Carolina level, but some of their, you know, chair members who are running their national um, uh, chapter. So, Popak, what do you think the import of this is? I think it's another example that you and I talked about of this pressure of the Department of Justice 
over the last 14 months, finally beginning to bear fruit at the upper, upper levels as they continue to, you know, bring the noose in into the tightest segment, which is going to be the Trump administration, the Trump uh, campaign, and uh, those that assisted the insurrection. And the only way you do that is you take down, you get cooperation from people like participants and leaders for the Proud Boys, the First Amendment Praetorians, the Oath Keepers, and all the rest. Once they go, it's a house of cards. Then the whole thing falls, and you're able to start prosecuting, indicting and prosecuting uh, the top of the chain. Let's let's keep faith. 800, uh, more, almost 800 arrests. We have 300 um, uh you know, 300 people that are facing trial convictions and are, and are participating. And now we have this one, and we're going to talk a little bit later tonight in the pod about Ali Alexander, who was one of the main leaders of Stop the Steal um, and and worked closely with elected officials. But when you, you have, this is good for, for two primary reasons. You've got a leader who was involved with the Proud Boys and cooperating and coordinating in the obstruction, who is now going to cooperate willingly facing criminal jail time with the Department of Justice. That's one. And two, he's going to be convicted of an obstruction charge. So that answers the question that some of these Trump-appointed federal judges have been asking, hmm, is obstruction really the right count here? We've already had three or four who have gotten convicted by juries or have pled guilty to that very obstruction charge. So again, I want people, here's the patience aspect. Every day the Department of Justice is working this case with its thousands of people involved from the frontline prosecutors to the investigators. They, they just asked Congress for, an, for enough budget to bring in 130 new lawyers, as you talked about last week, that'll be assigned to, to the Jan 6 uh, issues. Every day this pressure, 24-7, 365, is pressure on someone who's not sleeping well at night and is going to have to make a decision whether to try a case and lose, as we've just seen in the last three weeks, or cooperate with the Department of Justice and hope for a lenient sentence. And those are good things in prosecutions and will lead ultimately on the apex to the top. Oh, will you pause it real quick? Sorry, Bobby. You know, and as that pressure is applied, you mentioned, let's talk about OJ really focused on a lot of these other top level Proud Boy leaders, not just at the kind of local North Carolina level, but some of their, you know, chair members who are running their national um, uh, chapter. So, Popak, what do you think the import of this is? I think it's another example that you and I talked about of this pressure of the Department of Justice over the last 14 months, finally beginning to bear fruit at the upper, upper levels as they continue to, you know, bring the noose in into the tightest segment, which is going to be the Trump administration, the Trump uh, campaign, and um, those that assisted the insurrection. And the only way you do that is you take down, you get cooperation from People like participants and leaders for the Proud Boys, the First Amendment Praetorians, the Oath Keepers, and all the rest. Once they go, it's a house of cards. Then the whole thing falls, and you're able to start prosecuting, indicting and prosecuting 
uh, the top of the chain. Let's let's keep faith. Eight hundred uh, more, almost eight hundred arrests. We have three hundred, um, uh, you know, three hundred people that are facing trial convictions and are and are participating. And now we have this one, and we're going to talk a little bit later tonight in the pod about Ali Alexander, who was one of the main leaders of Stop the Steal, um, and and worked closely with elected officials. But when you you have this is good for for two primary reasons. You've got a leader who was involved with the Proud Boys and cooperating and coordinating in the obstruction, who is now going to cooperate willingly facing criminal jail time with the Department of Justice. That's one. And two, he's going to be convicted of an obstruction charge. So that answers the question that some of these Trump-appointed federal judges have been asking, hmm, is obstruction really the right count here? We've already had three or four who have gotten convicted by juries or have pled guilty to that very obstruction charge. So again, I want people, here's the patience aspect. Every day the Department of Justice is working this case with its thousands of people involved from the frontline prosecutors to the investigators. They, they just asked Congress for, an, for enough budget to bring in 130 new lawyers, as you talked about last week. That'll be assigned to, to the Jan 6 uh, issues. Every day, this pressure, 24-7, 365, is pressure on someone who's not sleeping well at night. And it's going to have to make a decision whether to try a case and lose, as we've just seen in the last three weeks, or cooperate with the Department of Justice and hope for a lenient sentence. And those are good things in prosecutions and will lead ultimately on the apex to the top. You know, and as that pressure is applied, you mentioned Ali Alexander, you know, we're maybe going to talk about him later, but now is as good of a time as ever, you know, who was a leader of the Stop the Steal uh, rally, which I don't like even embracing their names. He was a leader of the insurrection, um, one of the leaders of the insurrection. But he said that he is cooperating with the Department of Justice, that he is cooperating with all of the inquiries. But what he basically says, and this is where these radical right wingers, though, to me, also just show how weak they are, you know, in the fact that he basically said, I wasn't involved in any of the unlawful and illegal activity. All I did was wanting to, you know, throw this rally. I got the permits. I was trying to actually have a legitimate rally, but all these other people, they were the ones who acted out of control. And yeah, I, I just set up, a, I set up a bake sale. It was, <laughs> I got the permits, I got the lemonade. I didn't do anything that led to the insurrection and I renounced the rest of the insurrection. But that's what the applying of the pressure ultimately does because if you are one of these proud boys, if you're one of the people who spoke to Ali Alexander, if you're somebody like, you know, a Don Jr. or someone in Trump's inner circle who are having these conversations and he's essentially throwing you under the bus, you know, for his own self-preservation. It's like, I had nothing to do with any of this. All I thought we were doing was we were going to have this simple rally, you know, on stage. People were going to give these great speeches and whoa, all of a sudden an insurrection happened. This would lead them to say, you know, I got to flip on Ali Alexander. So that's what these DOJ tactics are designed to do. They're designed to put pressure on people. Here's my problem with Ali Alexander, but I want to get your opinion because you often have a a certain uh, different angle that makes makes this conversation that you and I have every week really, really interesting, even for me. I read the press release that Ali Alexander came out with that he gave to Politico, 
in which he said, I'm cooperating. I'm not a target. Now, what is he cooperating with? Let me just remind our listeners and followers. There is a Department of Justice-led grand jury impaneled in Washington, D.C., that witnesses are going before and giving testimony. So for that, that answers once and for all the question, what is Merrick Garland's Department of Justice doing about the leaders and getting close to the leaders of the insurrection, not just the 800 people that attacked the Capitol, which are also important? And the answer is he's got a grand jury impaneled. They're looking at the fake electors issue submitted to the battleground states. They're looking at the planning and organizing and communication between the um, camp, the Trump campaign, the Trump inner circle, the White House, the Meadows of the world, the, the Bannons and others sitting in the Willard Hotel, and what finally happened at the insurrection. People like Ali Adams are, Ali, sorry, Ali Alexander are important because they're not in that inner circle and they're trying to save their own bacon here, as you said. Now, here's my question for you. In his press release, he says, I really did not coordinate with, with the Proud Boys. I really didn't coordinate with any elected officials, although we know we know for a fact that he was in communication with Mo Brooks, Paul Gossar, and Andy Briggs, all, all Congress people. That was his press release. What is that? Is that true? Is that really what his testimony behind the, 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 the confidential secret door of the grand jury is going to be? And why would he put that press release out in advance? Because they're liars, Popak. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like that angle. That's your angle. These people are the biggest liars in the world, and they can't tell the truth to save themselves. These are these are like just loser people, you know, who have risen to the highest levels of government because there was a biggest loser in the world in the White House in Donald yeah. Trump who surrounded himself with losers like Ali Alexander. I Do you mean, think of the grand jury, though, he 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 notwithstanding his official press release, you know, the signal to the rest of his cooperators, don't worry. I'm not going to throw you under the bus, but when he's in that hot seat being cross-examined by a U.S. attorney, do you think more information comes out? I do. I, I do think more information will probably come out when he does that. But he'll also probably be, you know, very obstructing in his conduct. And, you know, we're going to be talking later about the sanctions that Tish James is seeking against Trump, you know, who basically treat all of our processes and procedures, the Trumps and his ilk, um, as a joke. And they basically put their middle finger towards our legal system in, in every way. And so in that case, we're going to talk about the Trumps agreed that they were going to turn over documents and they were going to turn over records in connection with her subpoena. Um, that Remember, that's the civil case that's taking place. It's a civil fraud case that's being brought by the AG for him inflating and deflating, you know, different tax liabilities where it suited him um, either to get deductions or to get loans in, in, in various areas. But then he turns over no records and says, I have no records. And so if you do a document request, like, please turn over your tax records or please turn over and you say, I have no records, you know, no. obviously, you're, I have no records whatsoever. After agreeing to turn them over, I mean, you're just putting your middle finger up in the process. But we'll talk more about that. But I do think Popak, he's lying. They always lie in general. But when they're there in court, one of the things that we've always seen Thankfully, and this is one of the reasons that Republicans have wanted to destroy our court system. This is why the, you know, the Trumpers particularly want to attack judges, because it is this one location where truth still doesn't always win, 
but at least the process that's created there exerts a level of pressure where the truth can come out. And so when we've seen the Trump big lie lawsuits, those were just laughed out of the courtroom. When you see the Trump judges basically trying to throw their conspiracies in these federal courtrooms, pretty much on a bipartisan basis. Still, they've been laughed out of of it. Now, that's the wildest of the conspiracies. Now, as you get to other issues that are seeking to undermine our election, you know, very sadly, we've talked about this on Legal AF after Legal, Legal AF. It's found a very sympathetic ear in radical right justices, but at least some of the real QAnon stuff, and it's really hard to even say this as a lawyer, at least the QAnon stuff hasn't made its way into the courts yet. But nonetheless, there's been a, a lot of radical right stuff that's but, made it. But to, to your point, which is well made, the pressure, it's easy to be a tough guy or a tough person on the courthouse steps, giving a press conference, middle finger press releases, interviews and all that. But when you're sitting in the courtroom for three weeks being prosecuted and they bring your children in to testify against you, you become a blubbering idiot in front of a jury. So it's easy for Ali Adams to say, oh, I don't know anything and I'm not a target. As soon as they put the screws to him and he's looking at liberty or no liberty if he doesn't tell the truth or if they prosecute him, worse, worse, worse for him and best a gift to the FBI and to the Justice Department is he lies under oath, which is a whole nother count of a criminal indictment against him for lying under oath in the grand jury or otherwise. So, you know, he's he's playing with fire here if he thinks his press release is going to get him any mileage with the the, the line prosecutor who's prosecuting the case. He's going to be like, oh, what, what's the press release say? All right, sit in the box, swear yourself in, that, look over there, that's the grand jury. Now give your testimony. And, and and have remember it's not just the just to remind people what this process is like any kind of cross-examination it's not like you just sit there and listen to them blabber for an hour of a narrative it's cross-examination let me read for you this statement you made let me show you this video of you let me show you this recorded phone call of you and then you can then, then you can explain to my questions so you know it, like i said all these ridiculous press conferences by the husbands and wives about how innocent their their uh, their mate is all falls by the wayside when they're under they're facing the the barrel of the of the full weight of the US Department of Justice you talked about facing the barrel so i guess that's an easy layup to talk about Donald Trump's barrel his toilet bowl in Mar-a-Lago <laughs> where i mean this was this is true popak though a lot of uh, people at Mar-a-Lago were reporting that the drains were getting clogged. And people in the White House were saying this, too, that the drains would get clogged. And when the plumbers would come, they would find all of this paper. And it turns out that it seems a lot of this paper that was in the drains and in the pipes uh, was confidential, top secret documents that Trump would either eat. He would eat the documents. I mean, you can't make I mean, like, no one reports this. Like, it, it's, it, could you imagine? No, Maggie Haberman for the New York Times did. It's coming out in her book. It's coming, well, yeah, saying it's coming out in her book. <laughs> it's, coming, it's a very sarcastic Pope. I thank you that she saved that for her book. But could you imagine if, like, President Bill Clinton or Obama or George W. Bush, you know, would literally just 
eat their documents, you know, or when, you know, Bush would go to his ranch or, you know, Clinton would go. Where would Clinton go again? What was the, where, what was the. Uh, Clinton went to, I mean, where did he, where did he. Well, where, where did he take his where breaks at? What was the, where, Camp David. Did he go back to Little Rock? He'd go to Camp David all the time. So if he would go, go to Camp, Camp David, David um, you know, and, and Obama would go to Martha's Vineyard or whatever. And yeah. they would just eat documents and <laughs> it, it's really wild. Um, but we've learned and we've talked about this on Legal AF as part of the Presidential Records Act, too. The presidents are supposed to take their uh, documents and turn them over to the archivist. We now know all about the archivist, like a position that really we shouldn't have to know unless we, you're we taking should never it. know. Never we should really never know, know who that is right? about the archivist, because the process is supposed to be very mechanic. You turn over right these records. Um, but here, Trump brought the top secret records to Mar-a-Lago, apparently was ripping them up and eating them and flushing them down the toilet. So the House Oversight Committee, in addition to the work of the January 6th committee, though, um, are, you know, probing, you know, I guess, you know, these these words are maybe not be the best for this, but are doing an investigation into uh, what's going on with these 15 boxes of White House records that Trump took to Mar-a-Lago. And so Representative Carolyn Maloney, the chairwoman of the Oversight Committee, she reached out to the archivist to get answers. And the archivist responded to her and said, we can't answer you at this point because of guidance that we've received from the Department of Justice. And Representative Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, she represents a district in eastern Manhattan. You know, she was upset about that. The House committee was upset about that. And they said, well, you know, you, you know, you know, we don't want the DOJ to be obstructing our investigation, you know, but ultimately the DOJ is the one who are doing a criminal investigation. The House Oversight Committee can conduct its oversight functions, but basically at the end of the day, they just issue reports. And so this led many people to believe, um, and rightfully so, that the DOJ is investigating and they're asserting uh, an investigation objection that we see take place a lot in cases, not just at the DOJ level, but there are sometimes in cases that I have popoc that may involve law enforcement where I'm representing a victim of police brutality, or I may be representing a whistleblower and we're subpoenaing records. And then I get an objection back from the DOJ saying, well, hold up, we're, we're looking into this or we, you, you know, we can't respond because of a current DOJ investigation. Now, the letter back doesn't say it was a DOJ investigation, but it leads many people to believe it. So let me ask you first, Popak, Representative Carolyn Maloney and the Oversight Committee, you know, led by Democrats, though, the language they used by almost accusing the Department of Justice of obstructing them, do you think that was kind of a poor choice of words there in the sense that the media, you know, in, in today's day and age, you know, the media headline is House panel, Justice Department obstructing Trump records probe. And that's not what they're doing. But I'll say this. And the media's the media screwed up in general. We always talk about how horrible the media is um, and how the media. But I think as a politician today, you have to be a little savvier with the letters like the DOJ, what they're doing is in your interest as well of getting and seeking the ends of justice. And you have to know if you send a letter like that, the dumb shit media today is going to write the dumb shit headlines that are going to accuse you of accusing the Department of Justice of obstruction. I think the reporting is pretty clear. The FBI has, has started an investigation, which means reports up to the Department of Justice about 15 boxes 
of classified documents that went to Mar-a-Lago. The FBI got really into it, so the reporting has been, because of reports that, that the, the National Archivist in recovering the 15 boxes. We hope all of the 15 boxes. How does the archivist really know what's sitting in drawers or drains at Mar-a-Lago that wasn't turned over to them? I mean, again, you're relying right, from on small good, intestines. Right. You're relying on good faith, which doesn't exist and shouldn't be it shouldn't be given to the counterparty that you're dealing with as the National Archivist. But assuming they feel like they were able to recover all 15 that went out, I don't know how they knew exactly what went out, and got them all back in inventory, the National Archivist reported, there's been reporting that top secret, the highest level of classified documents are in the boxes. That kind of piqued the interest of the FBI, the Department of Justice, and it's been reported that they are doing an investigation. I get that Carolyn Maloney and the Oversight Committee are doing something also, but wouldn't we rather the Department of Justice look into it, not probably not to prosecute Trump, although it could, but to look in just as they looked into the emails for Hillary Clinton and what happened with those servers to look into this issue and determine whether there should be a criminal referral of anyone involved with the Trump administration in the decision to take the boxes to Mar-a-Lago and maybe up to Trump. Who really knows? I'd rather have that than another another report out of some oversight committee in Congress. But as you said, this is not unusual. In every every civil matter or congressional investigation takes a backseat to criminal investigations by and large. They go first. That's not unusual. I don't know why Carolyn Maloney was so surprised by that. But And I'm not sure, but of course, there's no inventory of what's inside the 15 boxes. But remember, if oversight committee is one thing. It has to do with presidential records. Jan 6 has to do with, you know, is there anything in the 15 boxes that's really going to help the Jan 6 committee? I don't know. Maybe there's stuff in there about the conspiracy that Trump had with all the others to obstruct and to stop the peaceful transfer of power. Maybe. They'll get them eventually. I'm, I'm sure the Department of Justice and the FBI is not going to keep them forever from, from them. But they are, they are evidence now in an ongoing criminal investigation. So it stays, it stays there first. I think that the word choice to answer your earlier question was poor. Yeah. And I think the, well, I think that taking those boxes was its own independent criminal conduct as well. That I'm hopeful the Department of Justice is looking into. But I would again, pause to reflect on what the Department of Justice has done. This is, in the history of the Department of Justice, probably the most complex, time-consuming, and voluminous amount of cases that exist. Now, for all of the people who say, well, why is Merrick Garland not going after Trump right away? Now, you have a right to a speedy trial under the Constitution. And so imagine, though, if you brought the case immediately, immediately against Trump without having built the case that is being built now from the lowest levels to the mid levels to the kind of higher extremists in the Proud Boys organizations. The illegal, the illegality is a multi pronged plan. Shockingly, and we'll talk about it shortly, that plan was set forth in the text messages by Don Jr. on November 5th, three days after the election. 
two days after the election. We knew, or Don Jr. likely knew that means, that they were going to lose the election. And in fact, the plan for January 6th probably began months in advance. I think a lot of people actually mean months before. People, people, but people aren't even looking at the conduct where when Trump had COVID. Remember when Trump had COVID? He hid that he had COVID and he did the debate with Biden and was literally trying to kill Joe Biden at a debate. Like no one talks about that. No one even talks about that as a thing. But Trump and his lackeys did everything, including trying to infect his political opponent with COVID at the time. And we'll go talk about these Trump text messages, though, where they set out the multifaceted plan. The plan involved these, you know, phantom and unfaithful electors. The plan involved January 6th style insurrection. The plan involved all of the wacky John Eastman things about having the state legislators rule. All of the things that were being discussed, as Judge Carter said, when he said that it is more likely than not, this is the federal judge in California Central District Southern Division, when said it was more likely than not that Trump engaged in criminal liability, engaged in criminal conduct, engaged in obstruction, that this was a coup in search of a legal theory. And we see that in Don Jr.'s text message. You know, if you, if you go back to the research, if you take the Wayback Machine, the hashtag Stop the Steal and that approach was over a year before the election, led by people like Roger Stone and others. Why? A, <laughs> they knew that because of COVID, certain state legislatures were allowing uh, a lot of mail-in voting, which they know favors Democrats, that there were changes in the absentee ballot laws close to the election to account for COVID, um, and worried about that and the impact on the Republican electorate a year before the election, they were talking about, you, you guys can look it all up, they were talking about stop the steal, a steal that hadn't even happened yet, an election that hadn't even happened yet. So so Don Jr.'s revealed text messages, which I guess have now gone right then to the Jan 6 committee. Yeah, that's how it got revealed. The CNN between him and Meadows, it, yeah. right, between him and Meadows, is, is unfortunately a later link in a longer chain that started a year before the election when because they were never going to leave office except over their cold, dead fingers and hands. And I guess they, for they people were, who yeah. wanted, you know, the, the, the criminal prosecution of Trump earlier, would you have wanted him to be prosecuted before those text messages were on earth? No. I mean, is that what you have wanted? Like, so you get to cross examine someone and you'd want to do it without those text messages and without all of the voluminous documents that we have. That's why discovery and litigation is so critical. We're going to talk later in the pod about discovery in litigation and Trump's obstruction of discovery in civil litigation. But you need to get your documents. You need to take the depositions. You need to get the testimony. Um, and it isn't a surprise that Trump is in a circle and his lackeys don't want to give this testimony. They don't want to appear before bodies like the January 6th committee, where if they had nothing to hide, you would think they would want to speak in front of them. And so... The podcaster, Steve Bannon, 
I don't like the framing former Trump advisor just because you may have worked for him for a little bit doesn't give you executive privilege, despite the argument that Steve Bannon and others tried to advance that his executive privilege, just simply being a friend of the president gives you executive privilege. That's basically the argument. But the federal judge in uh, D.C., this Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee, right, Popak, Judge Carl Nichols? Yeah, he's, a, he's a Trump appointee, but just, to, you know, he, he does come from a very well-established, I think he was a Wilmer Cutler, a very well-established white shoe firm in Washington. He was known by his peers to be somebody that called balls and strikes pretty much down the middle, even as an attorney. So, yes, he was picked by Trump, but he was never seen as an overtly political choice as opposed to just somebody who was a who was a Republican. And now we're starting to see it because he's making very un-Trump-like decisions about key people like Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon's argument, uh, one of his central defenses in the contempt of Congress prosecution, the DOJ is pursuing against him. Remember, he wouldn't appear before the January 6th committee. There was a referral to hold him in contempt. When there is a referral, the, Gen the Department of Justice still has to act on the referral. They have not acted on the referral of Mark Meadows yet. It is slightly more complicated legally with Mark Meadows because Mark Meadows was actually the chief of staff of Trump. And there is kind of a separation of powers question that I think the DOJ strategically is saying, let's focus on Bannon first, and then we can focus on Meadows and some of the people. I think it's just a timing thing. I truly yeah. do. And, and two I think more. Scavino and Navarro have now been referred to the Department of, you might have said it, to the Department of Justice as well. So now you got three that are in the hopper, but the Bannon trial is going to be in July. Let me give you, I mean, we've talked about this before. So for people who are saying, well, why aren't the DOJ acting on Meadows? Why aren't they acting on Scavino? Well, the people who actually work in the executive branch at least have the ability, whether it's valid or not, to assert executive privilege. All privileges have exceptions. If it's not in furtherance of like the executive, like leading a coup should not be subject to an executive privilege. But our Constitution in Article 2 places a lot of power, vests a lot of power in the executive. And there are these norms and traditions and strong uh, uh, traditions of executive privilege. So if I'm the DOJ, I think the strategic thing you don't want Bannon to get off the hook with, though, is lumping himself with people who actually have potential claims of executive privilege so that the, so that they're not being kind of confused and merged and melded into one argument. You know, you focus on Bannon. You still have it's well within the statute of limitations to prosecute these other individuals. Um, Merrick Garland, the DOJ, you know, as long as Biden remains in pres as the president or a Democrat in president, this DOJ is going to continue to do its job. So it has more than enough time. I just think they don't want to lump those issues when you can I focus agree. right now on Bannon. So I both, yeah. uh, just one last thing, just one last thing on that. And to remind or to tell our listeners and followers, this these will go to different judges. It's not going to go to Nichols because he has the Bannon case. The, the, the wheel is going to spin um, and the clerk's going to assign the case to whoever is up on the wheel that week, that day for the case. So now the Department of Justice not only has to train fire on one case with one judge and pick their way through all of these complicated issues and, and, and uh, White House legal counsel memos from the 1960, uh, from uh, 1998 and all of this. 
but then he'd have to do it on three different fronts with three different judges, some of which may be less friendly than what Carl Nichols has been so far. No, absolutely. And so what Bannon's defense was going to be um, <laughs> was I was following the advice of my lawyer who told me that I have executive privilege, who told me that I don't have to respond. And so that is why I don't have the intent I don't have the mens rea, which is the mental state, to have been guilty of the crime of contempt of Congress if I'm just following the advice of counsel. And U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols said, no, that's not the case. And that is not an appropriate defense to a contempt of Congress charge. You know, it's interesting because it is in certain jurisdictions and in certain federal uh, circuits but Judge Nichols said from a 1961 precedent in the D.C. Circuit, which is binding precedent on him because he sits in the D.C. Circuit. And there, since there has not been a U.S. Supreme Court decision that overrides it, just because another circuit like the Southern District of New York or the Northern District of California might take a different position. He said, the, my district has spoken and it's 60 year old precedent. And it is not a defense. And the only thing that the government has to prove is improper intent, that there was a deliberate intention not to comply with the order of Congress. And you're not going to be able to offload that and delegate that to your attorneys and say, it wasn't me. I would have done it. I would have done it. The weirdest thing is that you see Shine, one of his lawyers at the time, I don't think it's his lead lawyer any longer, but you see one of his lawyers at the time in an interview about this had said, of course he followed our advice. He's willing to comply as soon as, as, soon as he was ordered by a court to do so. There's no court order that's going to come out. There's going to be a contempt finding in July and a jail term, but this guy's even understanding of the process like, sure, as soon as a federal judge tells me to send the documents over, Nichols isn't going to tell him to do that. Nichols is going to tell him whether he goes to jail for a year or not. One little area of concern that I have here, knowing that Nichols is a Trump appointee and his analysis of citing this 1961 case is to basically, though, I think signal, hey, my hands were tied here. I'm following the precedent as I have to follow it here. That said, if precedent changes, he doesn't say this, but, you know, if precedent changes, um, I may not have to follow it. And so the D.C. Circuit Court is not going to interrupt their own precedent that they've set. Um, we will have to see what the, you know, if this makes its way to the Supreme Court. After trial. After, after trial. trial. After trial. <laughs> And right. that's an important so just, point, Popak, yeah. the timing of it, if you want to explain that to our viewers. And yeah, it's not. There, there are things that Ben and I work with every day, which are called interlocutory appeals, which is sort of what it sounds like. It's in the middle of a proceeding. You get to step away from the proceeding, the trial proceeding for a moment and go to an appellate court to get some sort of ruling. It, it happens more than people might might uh, think, but it's not going to happen on a defense decision about whether someone has a defense or not. That is up to the trial judge. It may be an appealable issue, an error that could be reversed on appeal, but only after the trial is completed. So after a jury comes back, I think this is a jury trial, after a jury comes back and let's say convicts Bannon after they're charged 
and given a jury instruction about this is the law and this is this is what intent means this is what willfulness means and and he's not going to be able to put on a defense now i've i've and that's it the jury then returns a verdict if they don't like the verdict they can they can move to appeal to the, you know first to the dc circuit which will probably comply with its precedent and then to the us supreme court they'll ask to stay out of jail while that's going on, it'll be up to Nichols. Maybe that's where the Trump connection comes in to decide whether he stays out on bond or not, or on or or, or if he has to go right in while he's waiting on appeal. He'll probably be. He probably won't have to go to jail. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, once once you go through all of that, uh, you know, he's going to get sentenced to something up to a year. So we're, we're going to have to really follow this. It'll be a you know it'll be one of our summer events. Around our holidays, our vacations, we'll be talking about the Bannon trial. I'm excited to talk more about the Bannon trial and excited to talk about Don Jr.'s text messages. There's a lot of news that comes out, but I think these text messages are really one of the most damning piece of evidence in the case that's being built. But before talking about the Don Jr. text messages, I want to talk about one of our partners. It's Smith AI. And clients demand an instant response, but now more than ever, businesses are spread thin. If you're losing leads from visitors to your websites or missing calls that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service, Smith AI. Smith AI provides businesses with award-winning virtual receptionists who handle your calls, chats, and texts to unlock new business at a fraction of the cost of hiring an in-house staff. Now, I am a customer of Smith AI. If you go to my firm's website, you can check it out if you don't believe me. If you go to garagos.com, you'll see how the Smith AI works. This has really revolutionized the way my law firm does business. And anyone who goes to the website is greeted by this virtual receptionist who asks if someone has a case, what their case is about, um, you know, gets the facts. And these virtual receptionists are great. The virtual receptionists are also bilingual, which I think is, you know, incredibly important. They speak multiple languages. But I mean, for me, I've noticed instantly like the ability to kind of capture leads. And so like if you have a business and people are going to the website and you know, it takes people, the science behind it, like before they click contact, you know, they may just get bored or move on. But the moment they go to your website, you know, the Smith AI will jump in and start having this conversation with them and ask them why they're visiting the site or what they can do. And it's been incredible. And they do it on the web and they can even do it by phone seven days a week. And it's, you know, whether it's their 24-7 phone service, their 24-7 live chat service, they even answer texts and Facebook message and they integrate with your preferred software. So Salesforce, HubSpot, Calendly, Zapier, and thousands more. So even though you're not involved in every call, you're always in the loop. And as I mentioned before, they have English and Spanish speaking receptionists that will block spam for free, including all those annoying sales call. So work interrupted, run your business with less stress, get more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI pays for itself and then some with all the new clients they're receiving receptionists help you win. I can vouch for that a hundred percent based on how it's helped me and my law firm. Never miss another lead. Plans start at just $240 a month. 
I mean, think about that. Like, you know, it's it's significantly... You are a much better colleague since you started using Smith AI. I will just leave it at that. That's why many people are saying it is the secret to business growth and client happiness. And I would also say small business owner happiness as well. And our listeners will save $100 when you sign up using our promo code LegalAF at smith.ai. So you don't go to .com. You go to visit smith.ai, read their five-star reviews, and be sure to use our code LegalAF. That's L-E-G-A-L-A-F. AF to save $100 at